Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Hello and good day to you. I'm Sean Connor, and you're watching Public Comment, or you're listening to it. It's my personal journal, video blog, and podcast series. And I'm happy to be chatting with you today. Today, my starting points are going to be social and digital media. As always, one never knows where one will go, how one may or may not digress. So we might see what will happen there. Well, we will see. No, we might see, we will probably see. You can see the way I get fussy about my semantics here. I just want to adjust the camera a bit. Still in the very early stages of developing this video blog and podcast series. So I am experimenting with different video platforms and different audio platforms and even different places in the apartment where I will record. Yes, so what do I want to say to you about social and digital media? Well, the first thing I want to do is test and make sure that my video stream here is actually working. Though it's kind of funny, I mean, how important is it really that I do this live? It's not so important, except to say that when you stream live on YouTube, you don't have to then re-upload it. That's kind of convenient. So it saves time. On the other hand, if I were to just record this in the optimum quality, it would take a longer time to upload, I have found. Although I'm doing all different kinds of experiments here. So let's go to my channel. And let's go to live now. And let's go to live now. Fine, that's all I needed. I'm happy with that. Get, uh, my notes here. And let's begin. So to begin with, Social media as a concept is something that fascinates me quite deeply. To begin with, specifically because I've struggled for the last 33 years to assemble myself socially in a way that I feel most confident about. You see, if we were to backtrack to my youth, I suffered from severe anxiety and much of it was, or a significant aspect of it was social anxiety. And it's amazing to ask myself how different I might be if social anxiety hadn't been an issue growing up, how might I have established different friendships? Or would I have had the same friends? Of course, the fact is, I wasn't so great with making friends as a kid. I had really one super close friend 
from about the age of three and a half, four years old until I was about 13 when I told this particular girl that, well, I expressed my uh, romantic fondness of her, shall we say, and she had said something to the effect of, oh my God, shut up. And I hung up the phone after that and never really again faced the courage to speak to her. That was a long time ago. But prior to that, we had been, you might say, best friends, or so I had imagined we were. I had thought of this girl that way. And around that time, though, I did establish two extremely close friendships. Uh, so throughout the my time in middle school and into high school, I made two other close friendships. But I was not able successfully to really advance beyond that, to be honest with you. Really, in high school, I had two, three really close friends, four. I had four really close friends, people that I spoke with pretty often and did things with, though none of them actually went to my high school. For whatever reason, I was always more comfortable around people outside of school. I don't know why. For example, I was always... I always found an ability to have greater confidence at summer camps. One of my best friends to this day, I don't think he wouldn't mind me using his name. He might even enjoy the promotion, Timothy Moran. Uh, he's been a best friend of mine now since, so I would have been a um, freshman in high school. So you're talking about like 2001. So for about the last 18 years, that's one friendship I've been blessed to hang on to. Yes, but I really didn't get on so well with people in high school. Not to say that I was cantankerous with them or in conflict with them so much as I was severely shy. I did sit with people at lunch and maybe they have better memories of what I, how I may or may not have interacted with them. I have managed to block out almost every aspect of high school. You know, there were people I saw day to day in school and spoke with, you know, in between classes and things, but I wasn't the type to, you know, hang out as so many people did. I never went to any parties. Maybe I'd been invited. I don't know if I was. I certainly was far too shy to have ever attended any kind of party. So to be honest with you, the whole high school adolescence thing was actually almost depressingly lonely as a time period. Again, that's not to say I didn't have friends and didn't have people that I spent time with, but not in high school. There were just a handful of occasions when I may have spent some outside of school time with people I went to high school with, but really I just 
generally didn't. So most of my time spent when I would come home after school, after high school, most of my time was spent on the internet, instant messaging folks or going into chat rooms or message boards. I was successful and less shy, very much so in those mediums and did make what you might call internet friends or cyber friends or whatever we might want to call them, folks who lived. So I, I grew up in New Jersey. I made friends from Michigan, Illinois, Delaware, California. You know, I was able to correspond with a lot of people actually. In fact, I even had a number of internet girlfriends, I suppose I could call them. Though those never amounted so much to anything serious, there were these uh, online interactions of asking how you know, I was or she was and getting some degree of catching up on each other's lives and saying nice things to each other. And you can imagine the kind of interactions that teenagers online seeking romance might have. I'll leave that for you, that there's no need to go on about that at this point, except to say that I was really quite shy, managed to have social interactions on the internet though, but never anything that led to meeting anyone, I never met anyone that I spoke with on the internet. I suppose it may have been a fantasy at one point, one of those things you hear about people doing, I might've imagined. However, that just didn't happen. Well, there were people that with the exception of, I did have a girlfriend from Delaware who I had actually met in person, not on the internet. We had one of those long distance relationship things and she had friends and I became friends sort of with her friends through AOL Instant Messenger and did eventually meet them in person. That's the closest I ever got to that interesting experience. Bottom line though, is that I was, shall we say, super shy and socially awkward to the max. Alas, it is the case. My first year of college, that was interesting because I made friends right away. So there are all kinds of questions that are, could theoretically be asked if I really wanted to investigate the way that one evolves here, I immediately hit it off with my roommate and him and I made friends. We, we, we met two other friends and, and we would hang out all the time instantaneously. And yeah, I, I, I was always able to find someone to talk to and have a good time with in college, my freshman year at Kane University. That was the first 
year that I really experienced a significant degree of being social. Then the next year at Florida Gulf Coast University, I transferred because I didn't enjoy going to, I didn't enjoy really the urban campus atmosphere, though I did love the people I went to school with. I And talk about how social interactions are. I only keep in touch with one person I went to Kane University with. He's a uh, professor now of political science, I believe at Monmouth University, which is pretty awesome. When I transferred to Florida Gulf Coast University, that was a strange time and a strange thing. You know, this was what we would call my hippie phase. I was a hippie at Kane University, though I didn't smoke pot when I was at Kane University. I was what they called a straight edge hippie or a nickname I was given in those days was fake hippie. And I was adamant. There was no way I was going to drink, no way I was going to smoke cigarettes or pot or engage in any of those mind altering substances or drugs, what have you. And then things changed at Florida Gulf Coast University. I don't know what the exact change was. However, I was surrounded with a group of people who were the majority of them believers in the goodness of the marijuana smoking experience. And I would get into arguments with them saying, it's bad for you. And they would say, no, it's not. And one particular fellow said something, you, the expression, you can't knock it until you, you try it kind of thing. And it occurred to me, in fact, he was right when it comes to my lacking any kind of evidence to back my point of view that marijuana was inherently a problematic thing to indulge in or consume. And so it occurred to me, if I in fact have no evidence to make this claim, maybe, and, and considering the fact that the people around me, there was no evidence that any of them were harmed as a result of smoking pot. So I thought worst case scenario would probably be for one reason or another, I would not like it, but there was no evidence that it was gonna be damaging to me. So I tried it and at that time had fallen in love with it almost instantaneously. And from that point on, a lot of the friendships I made were centered on this shared love for smoking marijuana. And I have to wonder how might my life have differed if from the get-go, there had never been this need on my part to smoke marijuana. Why did I have to try it to have an opinion as opposed to just doing research? That's an interesting point in time where it would be, it would be something to, in fact, probe my mind if I could go back in time and examine what was going on psychologically and philosophically then.
in any event, I did become super social for a while with marijuana being the communal centerpiece of socializing. I hung out with groups of people who enjoyed to do that. And then though I met this girl and her and I became boyfriend and girlfriend at some point. And at that point I began to actually isolate myself socially, not so much out of social awkwardness, but it was arguably the first real serious romantic relationship I had and enjoying that and experiencing that was more exciting and interesting and fulfilling at the time than friendships or social interactions at the time that didn't seem quite so deep to me. That was certainly a say what one will about the essence of that relationship, that romantic relationship I had. There certainly were a number of things I would do differently. And it's arguable that theoretically maybe it should have never happened as I was not suitable really for a romantic relationship in those days because I had this self-esteem problem and because I had this destructive reverence for marijuana, putting it above other important aspects of life. And I had no life plan in those days, no tangible ambition. So I was just floating around and not, not conducive to that kind of relationship. That being said, there was depth to that relationship. We had a lot of conversations I'd never had with anybody and experiences. Anyway, the point being that was that year, that would have been my sophomore year of college, 2005, 2006, 2006, spring of 2006 was when I really experienced, I think, the kind of social experiences that probably a lot of people actually experience in high school that it took me to my sophomore year of college to experience just, you know, having a girlfriend that you see all the time and having friends that you smoke pot with, right? I know that those are a lot of things people in high school do. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. Actually, I would rather that have never happened in the way that it did. Don't really encourage high schoolers smoking. I, I think that it's actually destructive to the brain. I don't encourage marijuana consumption. I could only imagine that marijuana consumption is beneficial I think if you're suffering from cancer or certain other diseases or illnesses or severe discomforts where it would alleviate that in a way where doctors are supervising as a recreational thing, based at least on my experience, I can't entirely vouch for how another person would respond to it, but based on my experience, not just because it made me utterly paranoid, but because it burnt out my brain and because, well, I have heard neurologists speak on NPR talking about how it actually burns out the brain, though I don't have the research in front of me at this time. So don't take my word for it. You can look that up yourself. Anyway, I don't advocate 
really for the consumption of it so much. However, I don't advocate for the legal prohibition of it either. Two different conversations. I told you I would probably digress, I think. Did I mention that I have the tendency to digress? I have digressed. Beyond that point though, because I went in and out of college, because I dropped out after that year at Florida Gulf Coast University, and then I went in and out of community college, not establishing firm relationships with people though. And while I was lucky enough to have some solid friendships throughout those years, in fact, I've only really preserved one of them at this point, it would seem, though things are not always what they seem, which is a nice optimistic thought, isn't it, at times. But in fact, I grew shy in a lot of ways. And I would go in and out of shyness, though, or I would be shy in certain contexts and not in others. For example, one-on-one -on -one interaction, I could often get on really well with someone quite like here or in front of this camera talking to y'all. I can just kind of say what's on my mind. But in a group of people, for whatever reason, the stimulation is overwhelming to my eyes and my brain and I can't process it at all. Can't process the whole thing as easily perhaps as some people can and I get anxious. It's not so bad now that I get treatment for the anxiety that so impeded on things in my younger days, but then it was an overwhelming thing. Even when I was at my most confident in certain aspects socially, for example, towards my late 20s, I grew quite political and had no problem knocking on doors and asking people to sign a petition so that I could run for office or asking directly, directly for their vote. I had no problem giving speeches in front of groups of people. I had no problem really speaking at town council meetings, for example, in front of groups of people and to the council and such, or in establishing political relationships with people overall, that was an easy thing for me. Yet when it would come to establishing a sense of a friendship beyond that context, I would get really shy. I lacked a lot of confidence and didn't really establish many non-political relationships, I regret to say. So as I think about social media and the platform it creates for how we conceptualize socializing with each other and the possibilities that it creates for how we can meet new people and establish relationships 
in a global context. I could become great friends with someone in China or, well, Chinese would probably be prohibited from watching the kinds of things I say. That's a whole other point, but perhaps Europe or other nations out there where the government doesn't tell them what they can can't consume with respect to social media. Like India, for example, I have a friend from India, thanks to Facebook. I have a friend from Texas, thanks to Facebook. I have a friend from the United Kingdom, thanks to Facebook. So that's all quite an awesome thing. Yet I never really took advantage of it. That is to say, while I created a few friendships through social media, I don't feel that I have made the most of them. And so through the years, yeah, part of it has to do also though with spare time one has. Because I did go back to school and I was juggling either a run for political office while going to school or was trying to put together some kind of website or video blog or written blog or was writing a novel or some essay or poetry, et cetera, et cetera. Working for the school paper, the school newspaper, different things. Creating relationships was difficult because I just lacked the time. I was always busy. So now that I do have a little bit more time on my hands, I think, this notion of meeting new people on YouTube, through YouTube, or through Instagram, through Twitter, though I have a tendency to be shy and not know where to inject myself into a particular thread of comments and conversation, I look forward to advancing and putting myself out there and introducing myself and initiating conversations. Anyway, so there's just some background so that you understand where I'm coming from as someone who can be actually quite shy and who has had a sort of hand sort of on social media, but really hasn't gone all in. For example, even though I follow people on Twitter and have some Twitter followers, the truth is I don't really have conversations on Twitter because I don't have any Twitter friendships of that depth yet. And the same could be said of Instagram and am I missing anything? Facebook. And I may have said this in an earlier episode, but Facebook, I've managed to keep good correspondences going. Regretfully over the past year though, really between fall of 2018 and the winter of 2019, I was quite absent from the social media world because I was trying to get into graduate school and was obsessed with that. And I just think I missed the bigger picture 
during that fixation phase as I now see a bigger world than academia. I see a much bigger world in this social media universe and I find it extremely exciting. So I do have very specific ambitions as well. As I mentioned, one of them is to become a more social person and establish relationships. But also to me, like the beauty of social media isn't just that, but it's, you can really explore the world of people through video blogs and various social media status updates, really just get a sense of people. As someone who has always been shy and has been reluctant, I think, to really get to know people, to me, it's exotic. And I'm excited these days to explore the social media postings of so many people. But also, social media is an extremely powerful medium for communicating messages or for competing ideas and products in that thing we call the marketplace. It's a democratic venue. Of course, some people have more money, more resources, and therefore can do more on social media can make themselves more attractive on social media. People buy Twitter friends and people can spend a lot of money on ads on Facebook and Instagram and have more, shall we say, social media power or resources. But that doesn't change the fact that if you have something as little as access to a computer with a webcam, and a connection, let's say, just to Facebook or YouTube. If you have the right charisma and the right and the proper ability to attract people with how you present what you want to say, you can change the world and influence other people around you and Theoretically, whatever it is you want to do in that medium of your, even without a camera, just a Facebook status, you can, with a Facebook status, compete with NBC and ABC and CBS and Fox, really, if you put your mind to it. That, to me, is amazing. And... Influence is the way I think about what I do and say on social media. And it's interesting having the time even just to think about it. If you asked me two months ago, would I have spent my time on finding a more ideal microphone and webcam and just extemporaneously present to you my thoughts, 
would I have done that? Would I have imagined doing that? Not really, certainly not at the rate at which I'm doing it. However, and I've brought this up before, but it's, there are things we bring up again and again, like a, like the chorus or a refrain to a song, right? Or a political talking point or a theme or a motif, what have you. But the fact does remain. First of all, we live in times politically that are dramatic when we have a president and an administration that utterly and flagrantly violate the law and threaten our democracy as we know it. That's, that's a serious thing. And certainly, therefore, I believe it's important to communicate the urgency of putting that problem to rest and certainly energizing the vote in 2020 so that Trump is elected out of office. And in the meantime, too, really energizing the message that in fact, impeachment proceedings absolutely should have begun really from the beginning of his presidency because he was already in violation of the emoluments clause with his Trump hotel in Washington, DC, receiving monies from officials of foreign governments. That's against the constitution, violation of the constitution. Anyway, my point is we live in times where I feel the threat to our political well-being is unlike any time since, certainly since there was a draft since the 50s when you could be accused of being a communist and be, you could be thrown in jail. I mean, these are crazy times, in my opinion, politically. So there's, to me, there's that. Also, I also think about it artistically, though. For century upon century, right? The ability to write thoughts out in print in some form of another had existed. I think it's the 1400s that the printing press was invented by Gutenberg, Stefan Gutenberg, if I'm not mistaken. So there have been centuries of people experimenting with that mode of expression in terms of writing in general, that goes back to the BC years, ancient Rome and ancient Greece and ancient China and things, ancient Egypt and such, right? Since the earlier period of human civilization, people have been writing. What people have not been doing though is utilizing video as a means of basic communication of thought, right? The various video technologies have only existed for slightly over a hundred years. So in my opinion, it's more fertile and potent and uncharted and therefore just a little bit more exciting than merely 
writing out than mere writing. And certainly multimedia also becomes a more interesting endeavor. So we live in this more democratic context where, for example, we can utilize something like video to document and express and communicate. And that's such a fascinating thing. Why wouldn't we want to take advantage of that if we care about specifically, I think, archiving the human experience on the one hand, and on the other hand, too, standing up for your values and specifically your values in the context of how you see the world today. And that tends to be where I'm coming from. Whether it's an examination of how I'm contemplating the news and how that moves me psychologically, or it's a matter of the technology I'm experimenting with. And that's another thing I, I wanted to talk to you about is how revolutionary that this last two weeks in particular has been for me personally, because I've never indulged so much. I've never entrenched myself, embedded myself so much into the world of technology. Now I'm recording with a Logitech camera. It's the Logitech uh, C922. And I've got the Samsung microphone. It's the, what's the official name for it? The uh, Samsung Go mic. I'm experimenting with this. And I'm learning about video concepts as well. Things I just never knew. I told you that I was learning about the other day about how the internet works in general. So that's been one thing. Today I learned, what did I learn that was so mind-blowing to me today? Well, one thing I learned, I'll tell you, is that I'm not sure it's worth it anymore for me to do my longer my longer video blogs and podcast recordings through the Facebook live stream medium. First of all, the Facebook live stream video quality is actually not as good as the YouTube quality is. On the other hand, and there are numerous people who are reiterating this point that I make here. On the other hand, on YouTube, YouTube doesn't send out this message to other people's news, news feeds like this and get you people to watch what you're doing as fast. So it's a give and take. Do you prefer quality or do you prefer a sort of instant gratification crowd? For me, I prefer quality. Second thing being, if you do a live stream video on Facebook and you want that to then go to YouTube, you've got to do it, then you've got to download it, then you've got to upload it again. So that's a time consuming endeavor. Whereas if I stream live on YouTube, 
when I'm done, so is the video and it's available on YouTube. Upload time and downloading time saved. More time to spend on other aspects of the video, blog, and podcasting endeavor. So that's something that I've learned. And I've also learned a few concepts with respect to how this all works. Okay, here's something really embarrassing. Really, really embarrassing. I can't believe I'm going to admit it to you, but I am. This just shows you how some people like to ask that question, do you live under a rock? And the truth is, in some ways, I just have lived under a rock. Where is that damn notebook? Here it is, or damn piece of paper. One thing I, in fact, did not know is the difference between MP3 and MP4. I thought that was a difference in video quality. But in fact, right, MP3 is an audio file and MP4 is a video file. Just learned that yesterday, May 16, 2019, at 33 years old. Made me feel stupid. Though I'm no longer afraid of admitting there are realms where I suffer from severe lack of knowledge. And I can thank Montaigne for that because he was happy to be honest about his flaws and shortcomings as well. I also learned about concepts like frame rate, frames per second, 30 frames per second being a higher measure. I learned about resolution. So, though I still have more to learn about that concept, it's at least something I'm beginning to delve into. I'm learning also about video compression. The definition I got, I don't have the source with me, but the definition I got, altering to take up, altering a file, video file to take up less space on your computer and you do sacrifice video quality there. And also learning about the concept of codec, which is in charge of compressing and controlling data as it is displayed on your computer screen. Learning about different video formats, MP4 right, being one or MOV, ABI, WMV, and also about two different modes of MP4, H.264 and H.265, something I haven't delved into yet, though I've written it down as something to study a bit more. So you see bottom line then, so much I don't know, so much to learn about video and it's a complex medium, but it's also it's really an untouched medium. When you think about the fact that movies have, that we've only been making movies now, whether, I mean, whether you're talking about just basic home video recording or major motion picture video recording, film slash video has only been in existence just over, just a little bit over a hundred years. Think about therefore 
the kind of innovations that we could expect in the realm of video and film, say, within the next 500 years. If you imagine and think about print and how all that's been done with print has evolved over the centuries. So it probably follows that video has far from reached its potential. And that is one other major reason why I do it and find it so interesting. And by the way, digital video being the means here, this really opens the topic up to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, digital media. Specifically with respect to digital media, one of the things I wanted to talk about is how it is preserved and thoughts on preservation of media in general, digital versus print. Also, just the experience of digital media versus print media and what we think about it, what we make of it, how we feel about it, what do we prefer and why do we prefer one or the other? Or is it important to experience both? Why or why not? Me, I enjoy both. Certainly, I like to read a good print article. I like to read print articles when those articles are about things that I care most about. So for example, if I'm reading about politics, I'd much rather have the article in print so that I can annotate it. If it's an article that I'm reading, for example, on the New York Times website or the Washington Post website, if it's something that I find really important or interesting, I'm going to print it out and then annotate it. On the other hand, if it seems slightly less pressing, I'll just read it digitally on the screen. Obviously, from an environmentalist's perspective, we are saving a lot of trees by indulging more in digital media of all kinds. Additionally, it saves a lot of space, doesn't it? If you were to take a look at the floor surrounding my desk, it's just filled with print books and magazines to a point where I just am running out of space. And it's an unpleasant, it's unpleasant to sit around there actually. And I just have too much stuff for the small space that I have. Even as Ashley and I undertake a move from East Windsor to Basking Ridge, it would be interesting what books do I ultimately get rid of just because there's not the space. And so that in itself makes digital media more attractive. One thing that gave me a lot of reservations about digital media was a sort of paranoia that somehow it was less protected than print media, however. And this really depends though, doesn't it? If you take the effort to preserve paper products, these things can be preserved. If you take efforts to preserve media, digital media as well, these things can in fact be preserved. There were a few things I was reading about, interesting articles about this. If you go to digitaltrends.com, there was this interesting article 
called How Do You Preserve Digital Data Forever? And there, the author for Digital Trends, Simon Hill, was interviewing Dr. Micah Altman, who is the Director of Research and the Head Scientist for the Program on Information Science for MIT Libraries. And there's a good quote here from that. One thread is that the media fails with respect to digital media. The hard drive fails, the DVD fails, or the disc can't be read. Another thread is that you can see the bits, but you can no longer tell what they mean because there's no software available that will render that document. You might have a Microsoft Word file you wrote 15 years ago and it looks fine, but when you open it up, it might not be able to understand what it says because that format, format is not supported anymore. So digital media is certainly not this infinite, infinitely, not, rather immortal, infinite, blah, 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 I can't talk, forgive me. Take a deep breath and focus again. Digital media is not immortal. It is not immune to destruction. And to me, that's a nerve wracking thought because I have a desire to create media files that could be viewed thousands of years in the future so that someone could watch and observe a human as they express themselves from this time that we live in and really get us, you know, to me, it's a time capsule type concept in one respect. And for that reason, I am very interested in efforts to preserve digital media as well as paper. There's this other thing that I read about called the M-Disc. It had, this company has its own website, mdisc.com, and mdisc claims to possess the capacity to preserve digital media files for at least a millennium. You heard it, for at least a thousand years. I, they, they claim that this is a scientifically proven thing on their part. I haven't fully vetted that and delved into exactly what that must consist of, but that's interesting to me and something I would want to look into. But it does raise the question then, something that I want to learn more about is what goes behind the preservation, let's say, of digital media that the New York Times stores or the Washington Post? And what about YouTube or Facebook? And what happens with respect to an individual's account, especially for services that where you're paying, right? You're paying for cloud storage. What happens when you pass away and your account information isn't preserved and handed to somebody else. So as we contemplate it, it, to me, it's funny when we talk about the world we live in 
how we get so caught up in the way the world is today or the way it's been, say, for the last 60 years. But what about looking about things really long term, beyond the span of our lifetimes and beyond the span of even our grandparents' lifetimes and our great-grandparents' lifetimes, really trying to look at what we do in its significance beyond those time frames. And that's something that captures the attention of my thoughts quite intensely day in and day out. As you probably understand, as I've articulated, again, one of my motivations behind doing these podcasts and video blogs. So I, I'm curious and want to learn more. How, how does the New York Times preserve its digital records? And I know that there's a science to paper preservation as well. And what happens, God forbid, there is a loss of electrical power so severe that these kinds of things like video are forever lost. Though I'm of the inclination that because we have things like electricity as fundamentals of physics to the best of my understanding, that's not so much a fear as a shorter term loss of power as a result specifically of say a cyber attack that would be a disconcerting thing. However, we actually have to be really mindful and vigilant of the possibilities of a cyber attack. We have been hacked by Russians and by the Chinese here in the United States. And we know that they've had their hands on our power grids. So this is something we have to be vigilant of and protective of and to me, the single greatest threat there would be the power and electricity as they work in hospitals and people who are on life support or serious life-sustaining scenarios. Well, that's really all I wanted to talk to you about today. I wanna thank you for taking the time to listen and or watch. I wanna thank you also for bearing with me. This is a really unique time in my life where I'm doing a lot of experimentation with different technological devices and different website platforms and different places even in my apartment. So there's a bit of anxiety on my part worrying, oh, is this recording? Am I gonna lose everything that I've just recorded? Am I following my outline appropriately? Even this video blogging concept, the way that I do it now is something that I've never really done before. I have video blogged in the past, but I've never spent so much time actually devising outlines as I have now. And I'm so used to, on the other hand, actually just writing things out. So extemporaneous speaking is still somewhat of an anxiety-inducing experience, especially when I know 
that this is technically going live. Of course, the YouTube information in front of me says that in fact, no one's watching as this live stream is occurring. That's fine. One of these days, public comment is going to go viral, I am determined, and I, I believe it. Of course, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, but the point is you must be confident, ladies and gentlemen. Not that it has to go viral or that I define myself worth in that sense or on that based on that standard or anything like that, but obviously it would be awesome to reach a wider audience and have an influence. That was another thing I did want to talk to you about with respect to social ambitions and such and using the uh, harnessing the powers of social media and digital media. I wanted to talk a little bit more about political influence and my aspirations on that end, though I'll have more to say about it in the future. I did want it on record that it is absolutely one of my aspirations to one day be the kind of person who has both the intelligence and the credibility and the technological capacity to use this video blogging medium to influence members of Congress and the president with my considerations and with the considerations of guests and such that I would have on here. And also I'd like to have credibility with you and offer you compelling arguments with respect to stances I may make on political and or philosophical questions. So there you have it. I want to thank you for watching or listening to this episode episode of Public Comment. And I'd like to remind you that this is available both in podcast form and available on video form. I want to encourage you to check out my website, publiccomment.blog. want to remind you that you can email me at sean.publiccomment at gmail.com. Check me out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please do let me know what you think. Let's chat. Have a great day, ladies and gentlemen. I look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Thank you.